Chrisley can help you with a proper plan while walking through strategies in this valley of wealth. Take notes, sit back, and invest in yourself. Cause information that you're missing, it could cost you. It'll be adding up. Let them walk you through it. It's about time you start catching up. Learn to understand and apply. Let's get it going. Thanks for tuning in to the government coins. It's time to learn, y'all. Listen, this is another episode. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Government Coins Podcast. As many of you know, my name is Shakia Kegler. I am one of the lovely hosts of the Government Coins Podcast. And I'm also the founder and CEO of Govlier. And I'm Hamza Sabri, CEO of Global Connects, world-class government contracting consulting firm. And I'm one of the second hosts today. Our other host, Chrisley, wasn't able to make it, um, but we will definitely go deep dive into this dope interview call with Dr. Crawford. I'm excited. And y'all, this is so, so a lot of people who've been following the podcast or they've been following uh, the story on social media, many of you know that I got my start in procurement while I was serving active duty Navy. So as you know, this brings me great pleasure to bring another Navy veteran on board, right? Another Navy veteran, the best branch, may I say, uh, who she got her start in procurement through uh, while working in the Navy. And then she took that experience and moved it into uh, helping businesses sell to government agencies, but also managing money as a buyer with the Department of the Navy. So we're going to definitely mm. get into but she's helped businesses win nearly $7 billion, big B, okay, $7 billion in federal contracting dollars. So without further ado, Dr. Zamora Crawford, please, Crawford Allen, please let the people know. <laughs> Yeah, hi. Well, I have to say Crawford Olin because I think my husband will get upset if, if, if I leave him out. <laughs> but thank you. Definitely. Thank you guys for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here. You guys are doing some amazing things. And so I am just definitely happy to be a part of it today. Awesome. Glad to have you here. Awesome. So, um, one, I want to say thank you for your service. Um, but then two, let's talk about a little bit about your experience um, and your role in the Navy um, and how it prepared you for procurement. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so so I totally fell into procurement. I think my whole career has been um, happy accidents, right? So um, I was being recruited to join the Navy and I worked at the store um, called Maison Blanche. I'm from um, New Orleans. And so I told my recruiter, I said, I want to do something like this. Like, I work in a store. This is easy. I can do it. I'm thinking customer service. And he was like, okay, perfect. And so I got um, picked up the rate um, to be an aviation storekeeper. And so one of the very first things I learned in my A school and my training school was that, you know, like, you can't fly without supply. That was our logo at the time. And what that basically meant was that logistics or procurement is like the center of everything that you do, regardless of where you worked, you needed to run through supplies. So not to mention, you know, I, I had a lot of friends, you know, needing favors, <laughs> you know, working in supply because you you become like the connect, right? Um, so you have everything that they need. And so it was just, I definitely learned how um, to leverage and build relationships among my internal customers and just realized how I needed to be mission driven and understand that every department had its own goals, had its own missions, had its own budget. And really what I was there for really was to help them um, really, you know, or facilitate that process of buying what they needed to make sure that it was purchased and within the regulation. And if I couldn't get it, you know, within my supply system, then I had to go out and beg. So I learned how to be an expediter. I learned how to negotiate parts. Mm -hmm. um, I was in aviation. So if, 
you know, something was down for my, if a bird, which of our helos or a plane was down, then I had to find that part some kind of way. So I had an opportunity to kind of work with people all over the world that were stationed all over the world. So you get a little bit of that experience in global procurement and, you know, just really learning how to negotiate and um, get the job done as effectively and efficiently as possible, you know. And then I guess, I guess the next thing would be like, how did, how did that transition into um, being in contracting? Another total accident. Um, when I first got out of the Navy, I became a senior buyer for Siemens and I was buying um, BMW sensors and some other things. So um, was able to also, again, work doing some international procurement. That job sort of ended and I transitioned to working for a small um, government contractor. So it was almost like a mom and pop doing marine systems, um, selling engines um, to the to the government. And so I learned procurement from a different side. And um, when I took over that job, it had been vacant for a while. So they had a lot of contracts, government contracts that they were kind of um, not falling behind. They had fallen behind on in the contract administration part. So when I first got that job, I had to kind of get in learn quickly, um, but the Navy taught me how to do that. Um, everything was process-driven, so I knew how to go in, find what I need, and get the job done. I didn't have to ask, you know, too many people for help because the Navy kind of teaches you find the solution first and then come check with me to see if it's right. So, um, you know, got in there, helped them bring their contracts up to speed, um, saved the government some money in the process, and um, I started learning the FAR, learning everything I could as related to um, procurement contract administration. I was an expert at, you know, FAR Part 42. I knew, you know, what was allowable, what was not allowable. And then it just so happened that the Navy called me and said, hey, you want to come work for us? And I was like, okay. I, I'm, I'm happy to come back home. You know, I, I got out the Navy in a Hampton Roads area. And so my very first um, contracting specialist position was um, at MSFSC at the time, or MSC. And so I went back to doing kind of like ship repair. And that was my first kind of tour in contracting. So it was all kind of falling in, but being right for the job. That's awesome. That's an uh, awesome storyline. Um, for the people that's viewing right now, that's listening in, because you got a lot of small businesses, entrepreneurs and stuff like that, is tuning in. And it's few, two things that stuck out to what you were saying. It was one was, the far, you're understanding the far. And I have a saying that when you understand the far, you go far in government contracting. And those are laws and regulations that's based around government contracting. It's important to understand those laws. And then the other part was procurement, right? That's the most important part within government contracting is that procurement. And you understood the significance of their role to make yourself valuable, not to the other businesses that, you pro that you're procuring for, but to where the Navy want to use your actual expertise and services within that can you go a little bit more into the procurement process is where it, it ends to helping small businesses you know procure over seven billion dollars within contracting how important procurement is in government contracting yes so everything in the military or the government dod well you know everything whether it's a civilian agency or dod um is very process driven. So the government has um, a procurement process that really goes into three stages and you start out with that pre-award process. That's where the acquisition planning begins. Now where a lot of small businesses make mistakes is that they're trying to get to the contracting office. Wrong move because they're, they're not your requester. They don't kickstart the process. All of that starts in the program office. So these are your requesters. These are your people with the need. So they are actually within the program office conducting their own market research, preparing their own acquisition plan, which kind of highlights how they want to go about procuring the project, the product or services. Um, they're creating their own budgets, all of those things. So they are really doing a lot of the legwork. And I like to tell small businesses is that you have to get to know your customer and get to know the process. So when you understand that procurement process, you're not ringing the contracting specialist phone because they're not going to answer. You go in a special file, not that they're being ruled, 
rude, but they have another job to do, right? So your, your um, I was about to say your small business office, those are your other people, but your program office, they initiate um, the requirement. Now, um, that's when also that small business office can get involved and be very integral in the process doing the pre-award stage. Now, understanding how that pre-award phase works, that can be months um, in advance. Sometimes they start procuring or doing the planning. Um, it could be a small procurement where things just happen right off the back. They know that they need something, so it goes really, really quick within a couple of days or weeks. But then, but most of the procurement, these big things, they months. Um, 18 months in advance, they're already planning. Um, right now, I'm sure that there are offices that are preparing for requirements that are maybe not going to drop to um, fiscal year 2023. So it's very important to kind of understand um, who you should be talking to during that process. So I hope I answered that. So you answered it. You answered it. Plus <laughs> answered it plus more, and you gave the gem to you know, not just the contract officer, but it's these program coordinators, acquisition departments where it gives birth to the actual contract. So you're going to the horse's mouth first. And that's key yeah. um, for, for people that's small businesses and enter into, into contracting. And I think that's very important for them to know where it where does it grow from? Where is the seed planted at first? Because by the time you get yeah. to the contracting officer and it goes out, it's too late. It's already done. And and most small businesses don't understand that's where you get to influence um, mm -hmm. the procurement process. And so when you see those RFIs come out, requests for information, that's very mm -hmm. important. That's your opportunity or your, I like to say your, your audition to the agency, because those RFIs, those responses are going to go to your programming office. So they want to know if there's a small business out there that can actually, you know, do the work. And if they can, then they are required by law. And that's the thing that's important. So you have to know the playbook. You can't be on the field if you don't know the playbook. And you have to understand FAR Part 19 says that if there are two small businesses, and all we need is two, not a whole bunch, so you and a friend, you know, two small business that can do the work, they, they have to set it aside. And that's mm -hmm. everything that's under, right, 250K. So you'll see in your requirements, they say simplify acquisition threshold, anything. So that's anything under 250K. Anything above 250K, they're still required. So anything under that simplified acquisition threshold, that's automatically set aside for small businesses unless they can't find anybody to do it. But anything over, then they still have to set it aside. So you have to kind of know how to play the game and many small businesses just want to come in they want to leave their job on friday and serve <laughs> the government on money not so fast but we'll slow down so you that's have to kind of learn that and that's what i try to encourage small businesses to do but i like to say people want the chocolate cake and like to go straight to dessert but don't want to eat their eat their vegetables uh -huh. and so understanding the process and the rules that's your vegetables the brussels sprouts the things that you don't <laughs> love so you know, once you learn that you can navigate the system, because the, as crazy as it, as it is, too, in the contracting office, you have a lot of people that are sometimes new as well to contracting. They're learning. And so sometimes procurement, when these things get protested, it's not mm -hmm. because contracting is something bad or nefarious. You just have a novice that's in control of these. But when you are educated seller, right, you mm -hmm. can kind of pull that and say, hey, far apart, such and such said that you have to do this. Can you please verify, you know, if this is what the government is trying to do? And then they will, you know, converse internally, be like, oh, no, well, we should do it this way. Then that amendment will come out, you know, and kind of correct whatever deficiencies that are taking place. So when you know you can, um, from, from your home office or from your office, kind of control that process. But if you don't understand, you know, you can't leverage that knowledge or anything. So definitely understanding, I mentioned, you know, responding to those RFIs, again, that's your opportunity to say, hey, we are such and such, we can provide mm -hmm. this, this, this. And these are the industry standards. And guess what, when they go back to write that, a lot of the times, they take your insight, and you see those things appear in the statement of work. Yeah. Now they're that requirement is all of a sudden now is shaped to you because you respond 
I love the fact that you brought that up, like two parts of it. One being responding to those RFIs. We, we've said that multiple times. RFIs, sources, thought, any of them, respond. Like just, that's it, end of story, respond. Uh, but the second part that you mentioned, which this is a really good segue into like the next, um, next question that I wanna ask you is, you said that a lot of the buyers are, are new, are fairly new. Some of the buyers are fairly new and they are learning in the process as well. So I think that is a, a high level, you know, component of if you know of, you know, something that can allow you to provide this service without going through an entire procurement process, try to find a way to leverage that and bring that out up front. But I wanted to speak more to the difference between the contracting officers and the buyers. And then basically what was your role as a buyer versus your role as a contracting officer? Yeah, so so my my role, so there's a difference. You have your contract specialists, which are kind of like your buyers, and then you have some procurement analysts. I'm sorry, not analysts, um, procurement. Um, I want to call them procurement techs, but different agencies call them different things. But you have your people that may be doing your micro purchases and supporting at a lower level, handling those lower tiered um, value contracts, and then you have different contract specialists that may be assigned um, to different units within a contracting office based on their expertise and their level of experience. So um, you always have a simplified acquisition team. They handle the small buys, and then you will have your large acquisitions, um, things that are generally purchased under what we call FAR 15, and these are generally things that um, may enter negotiation, things of that nature. So you're more complex um, requirements. So um, so there's that. And then so what the buyer is definitely doing is that they're really facilitating um, the process um, and they're making sure that everything is done in accordance to um, the federal acquisition regulation. And then we have supplements um, at the agency level. So you may have your DFARs or your AFARs and things that kind of further break down the rules um, that you should follow as, a, as it relates to your procurement. So um, contracting officers, they're really like your, I don't want to, I want to, I guess I was about to say your gatekeeper, but that's kind of like the wrong thing to say, but, but they really supervise the purchasing. So making sure that that buyer is also doing things in accordance with the regulation. So everything um, there, they, they kind of work like an internal control within the um, office. And depending on the level of the procurement or the amount, the value, the scope and the complexity, it then now has to go to someone above that contracting office, then it's officer, um, then it has to go to legal. So everything um, is seen and verified and then re-verified by somebody else. So by the time that procurement actually hits the street, it's been vetted to make sure that it is legally sufficient um, and that everything that the um, office is doing as it relates to how they intend to procure um, the products or services, that it's fair, that there's nothing that's unduly restrictive in there, that they're not just trying to isolate buyers or anything like that. But sometimes, you know, mistakes happen and then they have to correct those. And then that's the beautiful thing of having um, amendments that you can kind of go in and correct your mistakes. I hope I answered that. <laughs> no, no, you definitely did. Um, and then, so I think we went through a different series of how the process goes from different, you know, angles in different departments. Um, so the next one would be as a contracting officer, uh, what was the process of reviewing these proposals? Because now, you know, we went through, we went through the phase of, you know, putting, doing all of the research to see who's out there. Um, now we put the RFP out on the market, we put it out on the streets and we now have the responses. What are some things to, or how can a business best prepare their uh, proposal responses um, from a contractor's lens? So what, what are some of the things you were looking for as a contracting officer? 
Okay, so I, I have to put this disclosure out there. I am no longer a warranted contracting officer, but I have um, those years of experience, and I've also taught contracting and procurement for over a decade at the graduate level. So I'll tell you, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of coming at this from a perspective like if I was teaching a classroom full of contracting specialists. And I'm also a DAU certified third-party provider, so I actually do train still to this day um, contracting specialists. So I would say to that, um, before the procurement history, there's a source selection plan. Right, so the government already knows how they're going to evaluate you. So when you are looking at, at that RFP, you have your section L that gives you your instructions, and then you have your section M that tells you exactly how you are going to be evaluated. You know how many people skip over that? Where most people skip right over that, they don't want to be bothered, they don't care to take, they read, they just give you what they think they want you to know. And so most people don't take the time to read the RFP. I know it's long and it has a lot of clauses in it, but the most important part you should definitely read um, part C, that's your statement of work <laughs> and tells you exactly what the government is looking for. So the statement of work tells you exactly how they want the job done. When you have a performance work statement, PWS, they are telling you what they need and they're giving you the autonomy to tell them how you're going to do it. And that's what people don't understand as well. So you have to understand, again, the differences between a statement of work, I'm telling you exactly what I want, give, give me what I ask for, versus that PWS that say, hey, this is what I need, tell me how can you do it, okay? And so when you get that, and I said section C, you should definitely understand that, your section L and your section M, right? It tells you L gives you the instructions, I'm telling you exactly what I want. M, I'm telling you how I'm going to grade you. So section L, most people bypass that as well, or they don't go line upon line. And you have to read a RFP, read it again, highlight that bad boy, come back, read it again, because you really need to make sure that you are what we call answering the mail. And some people really forget things. I'll tell you, when I had, back in the day, um, it, it's when you have like 10 RFP responses, the very first thing you start looking for, me, easy eliminators. Because why would I why would I take the time to evaluate your proposal and you didn't even give me what I asked for? So if right. there were multiple amendments, I'm looking to see who responded, who acknowledged the amendments. You didn't not you oh, oh you didn't see them? Okay. Put you put you to the side. So I'm not evaluating that one. Okay, because you 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 are not compliant at this point. So why waste my time? Right. And so then I'm looking to see if I have every volume, every attachment. So just the basic things. And then I begin reading. So one one of the biggest problems that I think um, small businesses face is that they have a hard time articulating who they are, what they do. And number three, their value proposition. Why should I choose you? And that technical kind of gives you an opportunity when you have to submit your technical proposal, it gives you an opportunity to tell the government all that. And people struggle um, to kind of explain what their value proposition is. They parrot the RFP, meaning that I will, in accordance with far part such and such, provide you with this. Well, that's not what I'm asking for. So they don't understand how to respond and then they're not giving me what they need. So it's definitely hard to evaluate a proposal like that if you're not giving me what I asked for. Um, number two, the cleanliness and the overall production of um, the proposal. So it's like you didn't even take the time. It's riddled with typos. Um, my eye after um, it's trained. I can tell when the font's off. I can tell when you cheated the margins. I can tell when you've done all these things. So because I've looked at proposals for so long, I know that you didn't do what I asked for. And so, and sometimes, you know, agencies have, not sometimes, but it is the fact that they have a culture, a buying culture. So they have a style that they like to see. Some agencies don't like a lot of um, pictures and graphics. Um, some like to have a certain font and all these different things. So 
all of their RFPs that are issued, that's like boilerplate in there. So when you're getting to know your customer, you kind of understand how they like to see things. And some people do that. So when you have a messy proposal, it shows me um, that you didn't care um, and that you just submitted everything. So in um, a clean proposal, goes a long way. Sometimes your eyes don't catch everything because it's nice and neat and you're not looking for errors. But when it's messy, now I'm pissed. <laughs> and so you just gave me, right? You gave me trash. And so now you're wasting my time. And so, you know, sometimes you just never know. Um, and you have to understand, I guess, the psychology too of purchasing and understanding how that buyer feels when they're looking at your product. So you definitely want to make sure you have a clean product. So answering the mail, giving them what they ask for, understanding how to clearly articulate who you are, what you do, why the government should choose you, and then having a clean, nice production um, in the proposal. And I'll say the last thing to that, um, and I'm probably going a little beyond the scope of your question, but small businesses who are responding to RFPs, you have to understand your capacity to support, right? So if I am a IT firm and I'm responding to something and it's just me, can I really provide 20 FTEs? So you have to kind of know which lane that you're playing and don't respond to something that you definitely can't handle because if by chance you're awarded that contract, it's going to be very ugly on the other side because now we have to go, the government has to go through that process all over again of procuring because you can't um, really perform. And so you definitely have to understand your capacity and that's whether you're responding directly or if you're teaming. Don't be afraid to say, hey, it's just me. Um, you know, I can do about two FTEs and, you know, start from there. And so I, I like to call it responsible scaling um, when you're doing this. So don't, you know, the government has these big opportunities. And if you're new to the marketplace, you know, you'll get to that point where you can have those um, 20, 40, 50 million dollar um, contract opportunities. But when you're first starting, you definitely need to understand where you are in that process. And then um, go after those things um, that are just for you. Like I, I saw you guys had Miss Lori um, from Civility um, on your podcast a couple of weeks ago. I love I love her. But one the great thing about her story is that she smart she started with just going after simplified acquisitions, and so she only went after the small stuff um, in the beginning. And when you know exactly where you are, what lane you're in, people know exactly where to put you. So it becomes easy for that small business person to say, hey, I have a person that can do it. This is just, you know, a little um, 250K opportunity. Yeah, I know someone that can do that. But, you know, if, if, if you're lying and you're faking it till you make it, no bueno. It won't, it, it doesn't um, go over well in the end. Interesting, interesting. Um, I wanted to ask a question to you, this from small business concerns point of view of when they're going after a contract and may have a proposal that they have to respond back to. Statistics mm -hmm. say that, that 96% of government contract awards go to companies that are actively marketing. One part of marketing would be using a capability statement through outreach programs and stuff like that with different acquisition department program coordinators and so forth. Um, another part I think that would be a part of marketing would be actually responding back to RFIs and actual RFPs. How does responding back to an RFP uh, is considered marketing uh, your small business to that government agency? See, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I see it from another perspective that I don't definitely um, consider that as marketing just because um, a lot of times government agencies already know who their key players are, who's likely to respond. And if you don't have a relationship with the agency, it is very difficult um, to kind of get in there and win. Um, unless they're just doing like a lowest price technically acceptable and you can come in and undercut it. But it's not enough. 
And I tell small businesses, not enough just to be able to do the work, but now you have to walk into that agency and beat everybody that's already doing it. And so you are unknown to that agency. So people like to do business and government's the same way. People, they know, like, and trust. And then that fourth thing being that I stole this, I'm going to steal this from Admiral Watson, this Admiral that I know he always say, the fourth one is people that they have access to. And that is the thing, like when you have a relationship with your customer, um, they're going to pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, this RFP is out, are you going to bid? And so you kind of already know as a contracting professional how many proposals really to expect. And so um, marketing yourself, it could be via um, those RFIs, but that RFP, um, it's kind of, you don't want the first time they meet you is to be, do your RFP. I want to have seen you before. And, you know, again, the, when you understand the psychology of buying, sometimes somebody has to see something several times before they actually make a purchase. So how many times have you come across my desk? Did you show up to my industry day? Do I know you? Have I seen you um, in other places? Have I seen you you know, and if you can't do it directly, then you can team, you can be somebody plus one, um, you know, to the dance. So understanding who the players are in that agency, and if you can't beat them, don't submit the proposal. But some people blindly submit proposals without knowing who the key players are. So, um, and this is going to lead to another question. I mean, I'm sorry, outside of probably the scope of your question, but there is a... Um, the federal business development um, process. So before you even submit an RFP, what does your capture look like? How much market intel, competitive intelligence have you gathered um, to know who is likely to respond? And that's just not for big companies. You know, whether you are a small company day one, you need to know um, the players in that company, in, in that um, organization that you will likely be going up against. Um, and then with the recent changes, um, and I'm sure you guys noticed and probably have shared this with your audience, that the um, some of the NAICS codes are changing. Um, SBA um, is going in and changing that. So now you are extending um, the scope of that and what it means to be a small business under that NAICS code. So not all small businesses already, we're not million in annual revenue and you only have 10k we're not the same but by law we're able to compete for the same you know opportunities so you just kind of have to figure out you know what's best for you and it's not a one-size-fits-all because what's working for my business won't work for yours so again understanding the rules and how to navigate through that then you can definitely leverage it with your knowledge and you know tweak it to what works best for you but you have to, you know, do some capture, understand who's there. And, and, you know, if you can't win an RFP, you know, head on, then who are the large businesses yes. in that agency that's already getting the work? So every large business is required by law, again, by law, to, if, if a contract is over, what, 750K, they have to set a portion of that aside for small business. So there is a subcontracting plan attached to um, you know, the services that are being provided. So are you that small business that can kind of do that? And that's understanding who you are, what your capacity is again, and then what your capabilities are. You know, are you trying to compete with a Deloitte or with the big boys and saying, I can do everything? No. It's like, if it's just you and two other people, what's your niche? Mm -hmm. Kind of like so become a subject matter expert mm -hmm. in something Right? and then go after the work that way. And then it's easy to market yourself then. It's not yeah. just marketing to the agent, but to your competitors so they can bring you on board. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, I love the way that you combine the two because we, we usually will say something around subcontracting. Um, but I wanted to kind of shift gears because we're like uh, getting ready to, well, we've actually hit our time, but it's cool. We're going to keep going because somebody said this is a whole master class right here. They said Dr. Allen is giving out all the secret sauce. So um, definitely going to keep it going. <laughs> but in the spirit of just learning more about you, so you end up taking that journey from being serving um, in the military, in the Navy, to uh, becoming a buyer in the corporate space, to then becoming a buyer at the in federal space. 
and now you do work helping small businesses get into this space. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your company, GovCon Growth Lab, uh, that you started in 2019? Sure. So I, I left federal service in 2014. Um, my my son, uh, my president, I like to call him my president, a little surprise because he I wasn't expecting him. But um, we found out at the time that he had autism. He was just diagnosed. So I, I decided to leave federal service so I can take care of my family. But being home um, didn't really work out <laughs> too well for me. So I was like, okay, I have to find something, you know, to do. And so I started consulting um, small businesses. Um, and one of the things I realized that there um, were not a lot of minority small businesses that were winning the award that or that I had the pleasure of awarding because I was looking, I was looking to see, you know, what the space looked, you know, looked like. And so I started consulting small businesses, just sort of helping them. And um, under my parent company, um, Crawford Olin, um, we were doing um, federal business development consulting. And I, I was finding a lot of small businesses who were not ready um, for that service. So I started the growth lab because I was just like, I don't just want to tell people no, um, and because that's just not me. And, and I feel like I can have a conversation with you and all I have to do, you know, to kind of give you some direction, it costs me nothing. I know it probably does have a 30 minute conversation, but for me, it costs me nothing to give somebody some advice that could change the trajectory of their business. And I realized a lot of us uh, minority-owned small businesses, we are first-generation CEOs. I don't have a rich uncle that's going to kind of like show me the rope. So I was just like, if I can just help, um, you know, people that look like me, whether it's women or minorities, then let's do this because the playing field is filled with khakis and polos and um, yeah, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really look like um, what the world um, I would say should should look like. So I just started kind of doing that. And I said, well, I need a place to put these people until they're ready, um, either for my services or they're ready for somebody else's services. So I started the growth lab and it was just a way for me to give free um, advice, for me to give resources and keep people abreast on kind of like the changes that are happening in the procurement space because, um, and I realized, you know, when, when people will come to Crawford Olin that it's a sacrifice for people to invest in my services. And so I know a lot of people can't take out of their small business because that's going directly into their home. So it kind of became a passion project for me to just kind of have a place that I can kind of share with small businesses and they can ask whatever questions that they need because if you can't afford, you know, consultants, because we're, we're expensive um, in the space. And so if you can't afford um, to, to, to speak to someone, then I was just happy to share that information. So I do it um, free of charge. People can kind of come in there, get what they need, ask their questions. Um, I look over case statements, um, everything, give instruction on what people should do next. And, you know, whatever, whatever the group needs. So as you are saying this, what I'm doing is I'm for the people who are on the YouTube channel, I'm dropping all of these links in here because y'all got to tune in on every single medium that this information is being giving out, uh, given out. Uh, another thing is now that's a fascinating story, but because you are now in a position of entrepreneurship, what was that transition like from being a contracting officer to you know, now being an entrepreneur, because we in, in the small business community, we say this a lot, like half of them may never ran a business before, right? <laughs> so how is how right. is that transition for you? <laughs> uh, it was hard. Um, there were a lot of days that I quit like once a month, I was like, I won't do this no more. So even though I had a master's degree and a doctorate degree in business, I had years of experience as a contracting officer, I taught procurement, I knew nothing about running a consulting firm. So I literally had to go back to, okay, business 101 and figure that out. And a lot of people, it's not just about being, a, you know, I keep saying IT, IT professional or you're a construction person. You need to understand how to run um, and operate a business. So even though I had my subject matter expertise, I had to figure out what that looked like in this space. I had to develop 
processes because my knowledge, I understood that that was attractive for some people. But if I couldn't get them from point A to point Z, then all it was just smoke and mirrors and talk. So I literally, and I'm constantly still doing that, refining my processes, understanding what the small business needs and how I can, you know, use my knowledge um, to, to help them really get to where they need to go. So it's a constant um, refinement of the processes, but you can't just get out there and say, okay, this is what I'm doing now. Here's my business card, my website, you know, call me all. Um, that, that, that definitely didn't work. So it, it, it was a, it was a transition and, um, I thought it was going to be easy. And in the beginning, I think that I was able to get some traction because, you know, you could be real ballsy in the beginning and your grit will kind of, you know, make a little headway. But once you get to a certain point and now you're looking to grow and scale, you need something that's repeatable. So that way you can um, give that to your customer. So every customer that walks through the door um, is going to have that same experience. So I had to, you know, again, what's my mission? What's my brand promises? You know, what's my value proposition? And by having those processes, I'm able to easily deliver. And then if I have an issue in my process, by having a process, I can kind of go right to that part and say, oh, that's not working. They don't like to do this part because I used to have this assessment in the beginning that made people's skin crawl. But for me, it made it easier for me to, um, create a picture, but I knew my customers hated it. So I had to stop and say, okay, what can I do during the discovery process to take some of that burden off them because they hate that. So I had to refine that process and figure out another way to get that information that didn't turn them off, you know, within two weeks of, you know, coming through the door. So, but it was a definitely a learning experience. Um, lots of tears, um, <laughs> I can say. Um, lots of frustration, but, you know, you, you definitely get to a place where um, you kind of get in a groove and it's, it's kind of not, not that you're coasting from there, but it should be as a business owner that you're continually trying to be better. And then you find the next person that you can kind of pull up and bring along with you. Love that continuously working to get better and better and better. Um, I think that's one thing sometimes we get stuck on. Uh, because a lot of times you're so focused on working in the business that you're not necessarily working on the business enough. Uh, so I love the fact that you brought that up. Um, final, final, final question. Uh, I already told the people how to get in contact with you. Um, I've dropped all of the links for GovCon Growth Lab. Did you want to share anything about your other business? Um, and then also what advice would you give to small business owners who are just starting out in the government contracting space? So for, um, th thank you, first of all, for sharing that. And again, thank you for having me. Um, for people that are just starting out, um, you have to become a student of this space. Um, if you are new to the marketplace, take time to learn. It is not um, that difficult where you can't learn. It is hard to understand in the beginning, but you can't be in a room and everyone's speaking a foreign language right the far and you don't know really um, what's going on. So take the time to understand that. Get your financials in order. Um, I would say, you know, as you begin to build your business, if you have no business credit, the first place that they're going to look at is your credit. So start getting um, those things in order. Um, be disciplined um, about your business. Um, and then to do your due diligence, um, not just on your customer, because every agency handing out a contract may not be the agency for you. Um, not all agencies are small business friendly. And what I mean by that is that their mission is so big, they don't have time to hold your hand. So you need somebody with a mission that you understand how to fulfill that mission and that they are small business friendly, meaning that they're going to give you a little grace because sometimes, you know, with these bigger agencies, if you mess up, you're one and done. And you definitely don't want to do that as a new market entrant. So take time to learn. Um, don't try to be everything to everybody. Um, find you two or three agencies to target. Understand your company customer, learn your customer, and then continue down that road with them. Get to know them. Or did we lose her? Awesome. Um, I'm over here taking notes. <laughs> I'm over here awesome. jotting down notes into my, into my phone. Um, I got this last question I want to have. 
<clears throat> you're in business for your own self, CEO, owner, founder of your own company now. But prior, you was contracting officer, right? How was that transition? Like, how did you, like, was able to go from this point and now you say, you know what? I'm going to go 100% in for myself. And and with you being 100% for yourself, look what you have, have, have built. How hard was that transition? Because a lot of small business owners get into entrepreneurship. They have probably worked already working nine to five, working corporate, stuff like that, and making a transition to where you're responsible for cutting your own check, generating your own revenue. How was that transition for you mentally? Mentally, it it, it is difficult. Um, so your mental health um, has to be, as an entrepreneur, because you may be depressed, um, you may go through things because if every day is not going to be roses and I'm going to say, you need a support system. You need somebody when you're low and you want to give up, that's going to pour into you and say, nah, let, let's go, you know, get up, do what you need to do. You, you can cry for a minute. I'm here. Here's my shoulder. Here's the hanky. But now when you're done crying, now it's time to get up and get back to work. And entrepreneurs need that. They, and, and you don't need to be this ironclad person all the time. You know, when you're in front of your customers, um, it's one thing to have to, you know, be in that place where you're stone facing. You have to deliver. Um, but you have to be true to yourself. Um, and so taking care of your mental health um, is definitely important. And I've gotten time, I've had times where I've kind of let that slip because the work has gotten, gotten so um, overwhelming and you're trying to deliver um, to the customer. But, you know, make it a habit, whether you get up and you walk every day or you jog or you do, or you're reading your Bible or you're praying or you're doing whatever, but find time to kind of fill your cup back up because you definitely need that. And again, a good support system. So for me, it was exciting in the beginning doing all the fun things. Um, but then, you know, I read a book that said about after you get your first 10 clients, the rest is easy. So that was my goal. I was like, okay, how can I get my first 10 clients? And when I first started in consulting, my very first client, my first contract was a kind of like a $30,000 contract. And I was like, okay, well, I cannot go down from here. So how do I get an increase from that point. And that's when the processes kicked in. I had to have a script, like, and so I knew what to say um, to, to, to my customers. So, um, and, and I've had a mul multiple jobs. We talked about me being in the Navy and a contracting officer, but I've, I've always had like a side job. Even when I was in the Navy, um, I would do um, little different things at night when I wasn't in school because I'm the type of person that I kind of need to keep going. I need to keep busy with something. But I thank God for that call center experiences because when people rebut, I got you. I know what to say. Well, you know, and that's one of the things that definitely working in a call center um, kind of teaches you. Um, so I know I may or may not have sold, you know, a few old people sometimes shares um, in Florida, but um, you definitely, you know, get, get, get that experience. So, but, you know, definitely it, it's not easy um, but you have to be committed to it because once you work for yourself and you know that you can do it, you don't want to go back to working for nobody else. Um, and so I'm just like, come hell or high water, we're going to do this. And so sometimes you have those low seasons, those ebbs and flows in your organization, but you got to set goals too. You know, so what are my sales goals for the beginning of the year? Right. I want to make this. Okay. So I have four quarters in a year, so let's break that down. So, and then too, I'm about to take you guys. I'm sorry, I'm going over. No, no, go but ahead. It's a pipeline of viable opportunities. So, if I say right within my first year, well, my very first goal was to replace my income, right? So, I was, so that was the first thing. So, once I replaced my income, and then I took my goal um, a step further, and I was fortunate enough um, within the first year. I was able um, to do that, but it definitely didn't come without its ups and downs. So once you're able to do that, um, then you, you know, just continue to build up on those goals every year. And if you are not meeting your goals, then you need to have a real conversation. Am I spending too much time watching TV? Am I spending too much time on social media? Am I going out too much? And if, and if, I am deficient in any area, then I need to tighten up on that. And so um, I, I heard someone say, you know, you have to live 
like no one else. So you can live like no one else. So sometimes it may be um, taking a time out from, you know, friends and doing things social. And if they're your friends, they'll understand. Um, right. they'll, they'll, I'll see you in months. But right now we got to get this done. And once you do that, um, it becomes easier. Then you get to the point where hopefully the workload is too much for you. Now you have to, you know, bring someone else in and you hire and understanding, you know, what tasks, are these person, you know, these persons that I'm hiring, what am I going to get them to do? Because I'm not keen with people coming in and sitting on a job all day and then I have to pay you. So before I hired anyone, I had to know exactly what duties I was going to pass off so I knew what that person would be responsible for. So that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, trans, the transition can be rough that way, but perseverance is everything and consistency. And you're writing down that vision and those goals about what you wanted to do. Like you're responsible for paying yourself now. You're responsible for generating revenue. You're responsible for making money for your business. It's not clocking in 40 hours again in salary no more. So that mental transition was very important and monumental yeah. to for your business. So kudos to you. And consistency, I would say, you know, it it may it looks different every day. So you're not on a hundred every day, right? But I may need to do certain things. But and as long as you're getting these things done, like I, I have no cards all around my desk. I'm gonna hold them up for you guys. But I'm I'm all my little index cards, writing notes on what I need to do, and I check them off as I go. Um, but having a plan at the top of the week, mm -hmm. this is what I need to do. Accomplish just this, this today. And then, you know, sometimes, and I know some people, you guys may put it on your phone, but for me, I, I don't walk around with my phone um, <laughs> unless it's at my desk, it stays docked because I don't want people to feel like they could get me anytime. So <laughs> I leave it and I get to it when I get to it. But so I write down because I, I know it's one thing to have it in your phone, but it's something about the hand, the mm -hmm. writing and the brain, it all connects and the psychology of it all. So I um I write it down and I line it out and I like me I'm a I like to to accomplish my goals so at the end of the day when I see that you know and I may have only checked off one thing but it could have been the biggest thing on my yeah. list so it it looks different every day but as long as you keep going like you said um hands of perseverance then um that that is the key yeah. absolutely doctor. Demora Crawford Olland. I had to say your whole name because this has been such a great people in the comment section <laughs> on YouTube talking about how great this episode has been. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing this knowledge and information with us in the audience. Um, we really appreciate it. So, no, this won't be the last we'll hear of you. So, or you'll hear from us, just put it that way. Uh, so, <laughs> this is definitely going awesome. to become a working relationship. So, thank you. I, I enjoyed you guys and I wish you guys the best. So, thank you guys so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, y'all. That was it. That was it of this. This was a really good episode. Uh, we are wrapping up this season. Like season two is coming to a close and we have been really knocking out these episodes, bringing all new, um, like knowledgeable people every single week. Uh, so I just want to say thank y'all so much for y'all support. Um, you have any questions, you can always drop them in the comment section. Do not forget to like, comment and subscribe and share this, share this video with five people that you know. All right. Um, again, I'm Shakia with the Government Coins Podcast. I'm Hamza Sabri, CEO of Globe Connects and one of the co-hosts to Government Coins Podcast. And we will see y'all in the next episode. All right. Peace.